On July 14, 1985, 41-year-old Denny McLean stepped onto the baseball diamond for the first time in over a decade. The crowd roared as McLean took the mound. His arm was already hurting, as it did all week during practice. McLean wasn't sure he could even handle throwing a single pitch. After all, it had been so long since he had played in a Major League Baseball game. But this wasn't Major League Baseball. It wasn't Minor League Baseball or even Independent League Baseball. This was a game held on a backfield of the United States Penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia. McLean was no longer number 17 for the Detroit Tigers, ace pitcher and 30-game winner. Now, he was inmate number 04000018, a criminal convicted of racketeering, conspiracy, and extortion. And although baseball offered a comforting reprieve from the bleak realities of his incarceration, McLean could never escape the things he had done to put himself into this position. Or the people he had hurt in the process. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type sports criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our second of two episodes on Denny McLean, the MVP winning pitcher for the Detroit Tigers. Last week, we explored how McLean overcame a litany of injuries to become one of the most celebrated pitchers in baseball. This week, we'll cover how his career fell apart and how a cascade of bad decisions led to his eventual incarceration in federal prison. In late 1968, 24-year-old Denny McLean was on top of the world. On the back of a historic 31-win season and a World Series victory, McLean had been awarded the Cy Young and MVP awards. He was arguably the most successful baseball player on the planet. But when spring training began in 1969, things took a turn for the worse. First, in an attempt to counterbalance how dominant pitchers like McLean had become, Major League Baseball announced that they were lowering the pitcher's mound by five inches. This change affected McLean significantly. With a lower mound, he lost his velocity on his fastball, the best pitch in his arsenal. Before he even threw a ball in spring training, he knew his 1969 season was in trouble. But that was minor compared to the ever-present pain in his arm. He couldn't even hold a baseball without feeling discomfort in his shoulder. He needed multiple cortisone shots just to get through the season. But none of that mattered to the Tigers' management. They expected McLean to pitch every fourth day, and he did. Through the first three months of the 1969 season, McLean had at least one cortisone shot every month. However, despite the challenges, he managed to pitch nearly as well as he had the year before. McLean was so good, he was named the starter of the American League All-Star team. However, the cortisone injections lost their effectiveness as the season wore on. But it did little to slow McLean down. He won 24 games in 1969 and tied for the Cy Young Award. 
McLean was expected to be one of the best pitchers in baseball going into 1970. That is, if he was allowed to play. In February 1970, McLean received a startling call from his agent. Apparently, Sports Illustrated was preparing a potentially damaging story about McLean's past gambling business. It alleged that during the 1967 season, McLean had run a bookie operation that became entangled with the Detroit mob. According to the story, McLean ran into trouble when he refused to pay out on a $46,000 bet. As punishment, a mob enforcer stomped on McLean's foot, causing the mysterious foot injury that contributed to his poor performance in that season's critical final game. Before the article ran, MLB Commissioner Bowie Kuhn summoned McLean to get his side of the story. Behind closed doors on February 13, 1970, McLean admitted to helping start the gambling business, but claimed that any allegations of mob connections were entirely fictitious. Most importantly, McLean emphasized that he had never bet on baseball, an act that could get him permanently banned from the sport. But that wasn't enough for Commissioner Kuhn. Six days after their meeting, the article was published and Denny McLean was suspended for the first half of the 1970 season. Kuhn's statement explained that while he believed the article inaccurately connected McLean to the mob, the Tigers' ace had still confessed to involvement in gambling. That confession by itself warranted a suspension. McLean was livid. He had been under the impression that the commissioner wouldn't suspend him if he told the truth in their private meeting. He felt betrayed, both by the commissioner and by the Sports Illustrated journalists he thought were his friends. The suspension was made all the worse by McLean's financial situation. He had trusted his money with a lawyer a teammate recommended, but rather than managing McLean's money, the lawyer stole it and fled. As a result, McLean and his family were left nearly half a million dollars in debt. Since he had been suspended without pay, things were looking dire. Thankfully, the Tigers rewarded McLean for his years of faithful service to them. To help him ride out the suspension, the Tigers' general manager secretly funneled McLean his normal salary. He also hired a high school coach in Florida to keep the star pitcher in shape while he sat out. Because of his team's support, 26-year-old McLean was ready to go once his suspension was up. On July 1st, 1970, he took the mound for a game against the Yankees. But no amount of practice could match a game situation. McLean gave up five runs in six innings. But he knew that Rust wasn't only to blame for his poor performance. Unlike before, he hadn't been able to fight through his longtime shoulder injury. The pain had noticeably affected his once fearsome fastball velocity. And the dip in speed hurt every aspect of McLean's game. Upon his return to the lineup, he failed to win any of his first five starts and sported an ugly earned run average of over five. Ever since he was coming up in the minor leagues, McLean had learned that as long as he performed well on the field, he could do whatever he wanted off of it. In the midst of the first mediocre season of his career, he found out that he was no longer afforded the same generosity. After he pulled a prank by dumping water on a pair of sports writers, the Tigers' general manager, the same one who kept him afloat through the suspension, decided to suspend McLean for 30 days. Just before this second suspension was up, Commissioner Kuhn decided to suspend McLean a third time for supposedly carrying a gun on the team plane. 
McLean denied the accusation, but the commissioner didn't budge. McLean's 1970 season was over after 14 games. In the span of just a few months, McLean's life had fallen apart. He felt as though he was being attacked by everyone around him. Fans, sports writers, coaches, lawyers, and even his own team. During the offseason, it became apparent that McLean was possibly teetering on the brink of mental collapse. Concerned about McLean's erratic behavior, Commissioner Kuhn forced him to undergo three days of psychiatric tests to prove he was mentally fit to play. Even though he was cleared, the Tigers were no longer willing to put up with McLean's issues. After he was reinstated, they immediately traded him to the Washington Senators. In 1971, 27-year-old Denny McLean entered a senator's clubhouse that was already chaotic and dysfunctional. Their manager, the legendary outfielder Ted Williams, was not nearly as natural a coach as he was a hitter. Not only was Williams verbally abusive and racist, but he was also a notorious micromanager, mandating exactly what pitch McLean should throw in every situation. It was a miserable experience. By mid-season, McLean became a founding member of a small group of players devoted to getting Williams fired. Calling themselves the Underminers, they defied every order they could from Williams, especially his rules against golfing and gambling. The clubhouse unrest translated to bad play on the field. The Senators were one of the worst teams in the American League, and McLean was still struggling with arm injuries and ineffectiveness. As the losses mounted, the fans stopped showing up. On September 20th, McLean lost his 21st game of the season in front of a tiny crowd of less than 2,000. The American League noticed and two days later voted to move the franchise to Arlington, Texas. The Senators were now the Texas Rangers. But Denny McLean wouldn't be moving with them. Before the 1972 season began, the 28-year-old was freed from Ted Williams and traded to the Oakland Athletics. The A's were the opposite of the Senators. The clubhouse was friendly and the team was in first place. McLean also discovered that the other players loved gambling just as much as he did. He was back with a team he truly wanted to play for. Unfortunately, the feeling wasn't mutual. During spring training, McLean's arm and shoulder pain was unmanageable. He required cortisone shots before and after every outing, and even tried painful shots in his spine to reduce backaches. What little effectiveness he had left was gone. McLean only pitched five disastrous games for the A's before he was sent down to their AAA team. After a month in the minors, the A's traded McLean to the Atlanta Braves, where he spent the rest of the season. It seemed like McLean's playing days were numbered, but when he arrived in Atlanta, he was offered a lifeline. One day in the locker room, a teammate offered McLean a paper cup containing a couple ounces of liquid. He said it was a new pain reliever. Willing to try anything, McLean drank it. But it wasn't a painkiller. It was speed. That didn't concern McLean. The speed made his pain go away and made him feel euphoric. However, it didn't help his performance, and he stopped taking it soon after. The rest of the 72 season was a disaster. The Braves released him during spring training in 1973. As McLean left spring training for the final time, he felt completely dejected. Deep down, he knew that his major league career was over, less than five years after his historic 1968 season. 
and he had no idea what he was going to do next. When we come back, McLean tries to move on from his baseball career. Now back to the story. In 1973, 29-year-old Denny McLean's baseball career was nearing its end. Less than five years after his dominant 1968 season, he could no longer compete at the major league level and was released by his team. Still, McLean had a family to support, so he took the one offer he received to keep pitching. Coincidentally, it came from the same place his career began, the White Sox minor league system. He pitched eight games for their AAA team in Iowa and 10 games for their AA team in Louisiana. But even at this lower level, McLean simply couldn't pitch anymore. So a week before the season ended, he informed his manager that he was retiring. Denny McLean was out of baseball for good. But without baseball, McLean didn't know how to provide for his family. Over the next few years, he tried everything he could to make money. He operated a bar, sold TV accessories, and invested in restaurants. None of it was enough. By July of 1977, the 33-year-old was bankrupt. Having run out of legitimate ways to make money, McLean turned to the only thing he could rely on outside of baseball, gambling. He started out by hustling on the golf course. Over the next few years, McLean made most of his money off of overconfident players who thought they could take down the once-famed pitcher on the links. McLean won thousands of dollars a week and finally found some brief stability for his family. However, like most things in McLean's life, that stability didn't last long. In August of 1979, 35-year-old McLean was traveling when he received a shocking phone call. His 11-year-old son had discovered an emergency flare in a closet and accidentally set the house on fire. Well, thankfully, his family managed to get out in time, but the house couldn't be saved. Even though McLean had been doing well on the golf course, he wasn't able to deal with the flood of financial problems that accompanied the disaster. In early 1980, seeking a fresh start, McLean moved his family to St. Petersburg, Florida. The Sunshine State was perfect. It offered plenty of new golf courses and plenty of new business opportunities. That summer, McLean was playing in an amateur golf tournament when he met a businessman named Barry Nelson. Nelson operated a mortgage loan business called First Fidelity and offered McLean a job running one of their offices. Even though McLean didn't know the first thing about the industry, the job paid well. He accepted on the spot. But McLean soon discovered why Nelson wasn't concerned about his lack of experience. It turned out that First Fidelity wasn't entirely above board. The business was engaged in predatory and illegal lending tactics, including accepting under-the-table bribes in exchange for loans. On top of that, it was financially backed by the Jewish Mafia. However, McLean wasn't perturbed by the illegal activity or the Mafia connections. In fact, he found it exciting. He was even more delighted when he discovered that his new colleagues were also invested in McLean's favorite pastime, gambling. Seymour Cher, one of the managers of First Fidelity and a former mob accountant, also ran a bookkeeping operation on the side. He and McLean bonded quickly, and McLean joined Cher's circle of bookies. McLean firmly believed that his attempt to be a bookie would turn out better than his failed foray in 1967. 
He reasoned that these mafia-connected guys were more dependable than the shady characters he associated with in Detroit. He was right that the bookkeeping business would run smoothly, but running a loan shark operation was a different story. He was a bad judge of character and helped several people get loans from Cy Share, only for them to default. Share didn't take kindly to their lack of funds. If the debtors didn't pay, he had some gangsters from New Jersey intervene. However, if that didn't work, McLean was personally on the hook to pay Share back for the loan. Through the next few years, McLean barely kept his head above water. But the worst was yet to come. On April 1st, 1982, Florida state officials raided the main offices of First Fidelity. Barry Nelson and other high-ranking employees were charged with racketeering, money laundering, and extortion. McLean avoided arrest, but the collapse of First Fidelity was a major problem. McLean's time at the company had left him even deeper in debt. Exacerbating the issue was the fact that Nelson still owed McLean nearly $100,000 in commission, which he was now unable to pay. But McLean didn't have time to sit around and wait for the money. He badly needed funds, so he contacted another businessman he met on the golf course. Together, they leased a private plane, which they felt would help facilitate new schemes, both legal and illegal. They were right. When word spread that McLean had access to a plane, more criminal partners came out of the woodwork. His old boss, Barry Nelson, was one of them. Nelson offered to make up for the money he owed by cutting McLean in on a cocaine deal. All McLean needed to do was have his business partner fly three kilograms of cocaine from Florida to New Jersey, where it would be sold to Nelson's drug-dealing nephew. McLean agreed, and his partner flew the plane to New Jersey. But the deal went bad. The nephew refused to pay, then stole the cocaine for good measure. McLean's partner flew back to Florida empty-handed. After the cocaine deal failed, McLean sought out other get-rich-quick schemes. Through mutual friends, he got in contact with Jim Pritchett, a notorious local drug dealer. Pritchett wanted to avoid going to prison for manslaughter and needed someone to smuggle him out of the country. Although the plan came with significant risk, McLean was desperate for money, and Pritchett was offering a lot of it. When the two of them met, Pritchett handed McLean a briefcase with $320,000 more than $850,000 in today's money. $70,000 was for getting Pritchett, his wife, and children out of the country. The other two hundred fifty dollars was to bail out Pritchett's brother from prison back in the U.S. McLean agreed to do it. He was too awed by the money involved and excited by the cloak and dagger thrill to think about the potential consequences. To facilitate the deal, McLean called another underworld acquaintance, Stan Myatt, an alleged former CIA officer who owned a tiny private island in the Bahamas. Myatt agreed to let Pritchett hide on his island in exchange for half the $320,000. Myatt told McLean they wouldn't bother bailing out Pritchett's brother. Instead, they'd fly Pritchett to the Bahamas, then tell him that the terms of the deal had changed. McLean was completely on board. As planned, the two of them flew Pritchett and his family to the Bahamas. Once they were settled in, McLean and Myatt asked Pritchett to join them for a walk on the beach. While McLean and Pritchett strolled down the coast, Myatt lingered behind them, a gun in his waistband just in case. He decided to let McLean do the talking. 
McLean was nervous. He also suspected that Pritchett was armed and wasn't even sure how much he could trust Myatt. He was stuck between two men with guns, informing a man who was already convicted of manslaughter that they were stealing from him. If he wasn't careful, the situation could easily escalate. As nicely as he could, McLean informed Pritchett that they were taking all the money. To soften the blow, he argued that Pritchett's brother wasn't eligible for bail anyway. It didn't work. Pritchett shoved McLean, cursing at him for his betrayal. However, he also knew that McLean and Myatt had all the leverage, so he reluctantly accepted the new deal. McLean flew home with $160,000 in cash. It still wasn't enough for Denny McLean. Not enough to support his family, or enough to sate his appetite for risk and excitement. In 1983, McLean contacted a pilot named Earl Hunt, who was involved in marijuana distribution. They decided to go into business together and discussed possible deals. But before they could put any plans into motion, federal officers arrested Hunt when he tried to transport a plane full of marijuana out of Alabama. Hunt told the police everything about his contacts and drug deals, including the ones he had discussed with McLean. Even though the two men hadn't actually done a deal together, the connection was enough for the authorities. It put a bow on their case against McLean, whom they had been investigating ever since the first Fidelity raid. On March 20th, 1984, 40-year-old Denny McLean was officially indicted on five counts of racketeering, conspiracy, extortion, and the importation, possession, and distribution of cocaine. Those charges carried a maximum sentence of 90 years in prison. He was charged alongside some of his first Fidelity colleagues, while others, like the partner who first suggested using the plane for a drug deal, or drug dealer Earl Hunt, cooperated with the government instead, testifying against McLean. The trial began in Tampa, Florida, later that year and lasted six months. McLean entered the proceedings feeling optimistic. He didn't think the government would be able to prove the allegations against him. But as the prosecution presented its case, his optimism faded. On March 16, 1985, 13 days before his 41st birthday, Danny McLean stood in front of a U.S. district judge to receive his verdict. The jury announced that McLean was convicted of three of the charges, racketeering, extortion, and cocaine possession. McLean nearly collapsed in shock, barely steadying himself on the table as the jury foreman finished speaking. The convictions guaranteed that he would face years in prison, if not decades. McLean could hear his wife and children sobbing in the back of the courtroom. He felt as though his life was over. The U.S. Marshals put McLean in handcuffs and leg chains before leading him out of the courtroom. He tried to reach out to his family, but the Marshals quickly pulled them apart. As he was taken away, McLean lost all control. He burst into tears and urinated on himself. McLean's fall from grace was complete. He was now a convicted felon. Coming up, Denny McLean begins his life behind bars. Now back to the story. Denny McLean had been one of the most celebrated athletes in the country, winning 31 games, an MVP, and Cy Young Award on his way to a World Series victory in 1968. Less than 20 years later, 
He was convicted of racketeering, extortion, and cocaine distribution. In March 1985, 40-year-old McLean was taken to the Seminole County Correctional Facility, where he shared a tiny cell with his former co-worker and now co-defendant, Seymour Cher. They stayed there for six weeks while they awaited their sentencing hearing. During the hearing, McLean was given time to address the court. In his statement, he expressed shame for his poor judgment, but despite his show of regret, he still didn't truly accept responsibilities for his actions. The judge wasn't moved. She sentenced McLean to eight-year concurrent sentences for the racketeering and extortion charges, then added a 15-year sentence for cocaine distribution. He wouldn't even be eligible for parole for eight years. McLean had been expecting a long sentence, but upon hearing the actual number, his composure crumbled and he lost all hope. The only silver lining was that he got to see his family privately and say goodbye before being taken away. McLean began his sentence at the United States Penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia. It was a massive and imposing stone structure that seemingly hadn't been updated or cleaned since it was built around the turn of the century. He lived in a 12 by 20 foot cell contending with cockroaches, mice, and asbestos. Not to mention the nine other inmates that shared the cell with him. It made the harsh conditions he had endured during his first year in the minors seem like Club Med. Back then, he could always take his car and drive back home. That option no longer existed. But prison still had one element of McLean's former life. Baseball. Since his retirement, he had let himself go and weighed nearly 300 pounds. But that didn't stop him from reuniting with the game he used to love so much. On July 14, 1985, Danny McLean returned to the pitcher's mound for the first time since 1973. In addition to playing, he was also managing a cobbled-together prison team called the Detroit Denny's. They were facing off against the prison's other team, the Cardinals. The entire prison population, including the warden and the guards, gathered at the field to watch McLean pitch. There was heavy gambling on the game, too. McLean was even offered $1,000 to throw the game, which he turned down. For once, his integrity was worth more than money. As McLean stared down the batter, it was like he was back in the World Series. McLean gave up four runs over three innings, but he also struck out six batters. The game was tied 4-4 when McLean left the mound for the final time and shifted over to shortstop for the rest of the game. After McLean, his team had no other good pitchers and the Cardinals offense took advantage. They exploded for 21 runs in the next five innings and ultimately won the game 25-5. Unfortunately, the pain in McLean's arm returned with a vengeance after the game. He had to end his prison baseball career after a single outing. Without the escape of baseball, life behind bars became even more miserable. After only a few months in prison, McLean couldn't take the unsafe conditions anymore. He became laser-focused on getting transferred somewhere more livable. McLean considered paying off the warden's lawyer, who was known to sell transfers. When that proved to be too expensive, he considered cooperating with an FBI investigation into the warden's money-for-transfer scheme, but decided that was too dangerous. 
Meanwhile, his wife Sharon did everything in her power to get McLean freed or moved to a better prison. She met with police, federal agents, and senators to see who could help. Her efforts paid off. After nearly a year in Atlanta, he was transferred to a much more comfortable prison in Talladega to serve out the rest of his sentence. Meanwhile, the wheels of justice slowly turned as McLean's appeal crawled its way through the courts. Another calendar year passed before McLean's case was heard by the appeals court in January 1987. Even after the court date, it took another seven months for the court to render a verdict. On August 7th, McLean received a phone call from his lawyer. For once, it was good news. The court had sided with McLean. His entire conviction was overturned. A month later, 43-year-old Denny McLean walked out through the prison gates, a free man after 902 days behind bars. Upon his release, McLean tried to keep his nose clean. He spent three months working as a promoter for a local minor league hockey team and played organ at a bar in Detroit. He also wrote a book about his life entitled Strikeout, which was published in September 1988. The publicity from the book made McLean a hot commodity on the media circuit. After a particularly entertaining interview on a Detroit radio station, the station's owner offered McLean the opportunity to guest host an occasional time slot. He was so good that he was quickly given a regular program. That radio show turned into a hit TV talk show co-hosted with a local sports reporter. McLean had successfully come all the way back from his low point in that rat-infested Atlanta prison. He had found legitimate employment, was making more money than he ever had before, and was even becoming a popular media personality. But as he had learned many times before, this type of success didn't last forever. In March of 1992, McLean's 26-year-old daughter Kristen was killed in a car crash. The McLean family was emotionally crippled by the tragedy. Unable to cope with a loss, Denny McLean receded from his wife and children, spending as much time as possible working, traveling, and drinking. The radio and TV shows were steady work and good money, but they lacked the one thing Denny McLean craved, excitement. From the pressure of a World Series game to the adrenaline rush of high-stakes gambling, McLean always sought out risk. A year after his daughter's death, he found a new venture in the form of a meat production and distribution company called Farmer Pete's. The Pete family were desperate to sell their ownership in the struggling company, but hadn't found a buyer willing to take on the burden. Until they met Denny McLean. Buying Farmer Pete's was a huge gamble which was exactly the sort of excitement that McLean had been missing in his life since leaving prison. It was also the perfect excuse to spend more time away from home and distance himself from his grief. The first step was to get the company out of debt. On top of the money that Farmer Pete's owed to the bank, McLean himself had taken out a $1.1 million loan with a business associate to buy the company in the first place. All told, McLean and his business partner needed $2.5 million to keep the company alive. If they didn't pay within 90 days of McLean's purchase of the company, the bank threatened to foreclose. They did have one arrow in their quiver, a $14 million employee pension fund. According to McLean, his partner's accountant suggested that they move the pension fund to another bank. 
the new bank would then be incentivized to work with them and would give them a new loan of $2.5 million to take care of the previous debt. McLean and his partner agreed, and the accountant took care of the rest. Soon, they had their loan, repaid the original bank, and got started on saving Farmer Pete's. Except it wasn't really a loan. The money was actually directly and illegally taken out of the pension plan itself using some creative accounting. In the spring of 1994, the Pete's employee union realized what had happened and alerted the federal authorities. McLean was rattled when he heard that the FBI was investigating him. He knew he had a decision to make. Actively cooperate with the FBI and tell them all he knew or stay quiet. Ultimately, he decided to not cooperate and hoped the investigation ended fruitlessly. It was yet another gamble and yet another loss. In May 1996, 52-year-old Denny McLean was indicted on charges of theft, conspiracy, and money laundering. The government alleged that McLean knew the money was embezzled from the pension fund and was actively involved in the scheme. McLean's case wasn't helped by his refusal to cooperate with the FBI. It was also hurt by the fact that after receiving the $2.5 million, he and his partner didn't put it all back into the business. They went on a spending spree, buying a condo in Puerto Rico, a motorcycle, and a country club membership. On December 14, 1996, the jury convicted Denny McLean and his business partner of money laundering, conspiracy, theft, and mail fraud. McLean had once again made the same mistakes that sent him to jail the first time, trusting the wrong people and ignoring illegal behavior. 53-year-old Denny McLean was sentenced to eight years in prison in June 1997. Soon after, his wife Sharon filed for divorce. McLean was shattered and heartbroken. Making matters worse, neither Sharon nor their now grown-up children chose to visit him in prison. McLean finally began to grasp the real consequences of his reckless behavior. His life had fallen apart and his family had abandoned him. In April 2003, 59-year-old Denny McLean was released from prison after nearly six years. He lived at a halfway house in Detroit and worked at a 7-Eleven, eager to prove that he deserved a second or third chance. Many were convinced, including his ex-wife Sharon, who agreed to remarry him. But despite his best efforts, McLean hasn't been entirely free of trouble since leaving prison. He was arrested in 2008 and 2011 due to outstanding arrest warrants stemming from small-scale civil cases. However, both cases were resolved quickly and McLean has mostly kept his nose clean. As of 2020, he's working as a radio host, sports analyst, and podcaster. He and Sharon are still married. Winning 30 games is a feat that will likely never be accomplished again after Denny McLean did it in 1968. But for McLean, that magical season is secondary to the real feat he finally accomplished decades later, getting his life back together. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. 
In addition to the many sources we used, we found the book I Told You I Wasn't Perfect by Danny McLean and Eli Zaret to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Sports Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Aaron Larson, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Ryan Lee, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. Carter Roy.